Okay, great. We're talking about building a company yesterday versus today and tomorrow. A lot has changed about how companies have been built 10 years ago versus how they're built today. And we're sure that there's a lot to change over the next 10 years. In this panel, we're going to try and talk about what those changes have been and provided some educated guesses about what might change in the next 10 years and talk about some of the trickiest inflection points that these founders have faced as they're growing a startup. And to do that, we have a great panel of founders who have all started and exited companies in the last 10 years. And we'll go and ask them for their insights. I'll let the panelists introduce themselves, but before they do that, I'll give you a little context for myself. My name is Samushri Dara. I am leading the startup facing products here at AngelList, including things like roll-up vehicles and the suite of software products for startups, including equity management and banking. I'm Crystal Mobiani, uh, the co-founder and CEO of Bento Box, a platform that helps restaurants grow their business online. Um, we re recently exited to Pfizer, which is a global payments company, and um, now I am the head of restaurants at Pfizer. Hi, my name is Tracy Young. Um, I co-founded a company 10 years ago called PlanGrid, uh, which I ended up selling to Autodesk after running it for eight years. Um, I currently and co-founder of a company called Tiger Eye. Uh, we are a sales solution currently in stealth. Hey everyone, uh, thanks for inviting me here. Uh, my name is Jonathan, I'm the CEO and founder of Pi. Um, we build smart dog collars. Uh, these collars are doing GPS and cellular communication, allow us to uh, recover dogs when they escape or alert their owner when they escape. Uh, we also do um, activity tracking, sleep tracking, and a social network for all the dog owners living in the same area. Uh, so we're really trying to kind of uh, build technology to elevate the relationship between dogs and their owners. And um, yeah, I've been doing that for the past five years. Uh, the Ficola has been in market for about three years and we are a first series B company. We raised our series B about a year and a half ago now. Um, yeah, that's it. Thank you. Okay. Well, the first one to to kick this off is, you know, a decade ago uh, when you were launching a company as a founder, there were things in the world that were pretty predictable. You would perhaps need to be in the San Francisco Bay Area and you'd need to know uh, what technology platforms to build on. And those are pretty standard solutions. And today, those two specifically are no longer given. Um, what else do you think has changed in the last 10 years in regards to how startups get founded? What, what's different today? Got it. Yeah, so I think there are multiple things that changed when it comes to like building startups, right? Uh, and I think uh, COVID exacerbated definitely the location uh, component of, of that answer, right? Like there are certain new technologies and more platforms and more things that we can build on. And I think that's a good thing because especially in technology and in startup world, like every problem is different. So it's kind of hard to try to apply the same solutions to like every different type of problem we're trying to solve out there. Uh, but I think from a, a geography perspective, it's definitely true that um, accelerated by COVID, it's, it is not obvious that capital is getting deployed everywhere uh, in the US and that uh, you don't have to be on the West Coast anymore to uh, build a great big billion dollar plus size uh, uh, startup. It was unfathomable to be able to build a company remotely until COVID happened. And so for my company today, it's 100% remote. Um, and I think that is the biggest change for 
all, all founders on this panel. Um, but I also think it's really important to highlight what hasn't changed, which is you've got two women on this panel, which is really amazing, but it's just not reflective of status quo. In reality, in 2021, female founders secured only 2% of venture capital funding, and that has to change. Yeah, I think another thing that I think about is um, when it came down to fundraising, just running around all over, you know, we were New York City based, um, so not San Francisco, but running around all over New York, flying to San Francisco, um, stacking all the meetings, making sure I was getting everywhere, getting all the decks ready, um, making sure I had everything memorized, you know, and now it's, it's a bit, you can really build those relationships remotely a bit more, a bit lower stakes. Um, so I think from that perspective, you don't have to invest as much money into like running around meeting people. Obviously, I think that there's a lot to gain, um, you know, being in person, especially with someone that you're going to have such an important relationship with. Um, but those relationships should be built over time. And now building that relationship is just going to be a lot um, faster and less expensive from my perspective. Yeah, makes sense. Um, Tracy, on your point, have you found that the changed nature of fundraising has had any impact on, on female founders being able to raise capital or has it not had as much of an impact as you'd imagine? I think it's different for Crystal and I. We're second-time founders, and that's just like, if you have a thesis that second-time founders have learned anything at all and they're going to perform better, like VCs are going to want to invest here. Um, I I do think the stats are like, really terrible and sad, right? Two percent. Are you kidding me? Female founders only got 2% of funding last year. That's, we're make up 50% of humanity. Like, what are we all saying here that we can't found great companies and we can't be great leaders? Yeah, I, I think there's a massive problem here. I mean, let me tell you, this is a really good one. Um, I raised my series B nine months pregnant during COVID. Um, I would not have done that. I mean, I, if, if, if I was going in person, it would have been it not like I was trying to hide it, but it would have been very difficult. I shouldn't have been flying, shouldn't have been running around. And, you know, that aspect of what was going on in my personal life has nothing to do with, you know, my, uh, professional life or, you know, what I'm going to do with the capital or what was going to come next. So it's, it's a really interesting dynamic, um, you know, and it's not like something that would come up, you know, as I was going through my pitch. Uh, so that's something that uh, I think would have never happened 10 years ago. Do you think this will create uh, a larger number of companies or greater variance? Or there are some people who believe that uh, the old formula was the right way to build high growth technology companies. Uh, the question here is, is it still possible to build a high growth technology companies in this new fashion? And we're curious for your personal take here about whether you think it's possible. Yeah, I do think that, I mean, there is no doubt in my mind that um, it's not about how you build the company, it's, yeah. it's how you execute, right? And so it, to me, I don't think there is a single recipe that we figured out 10 years ago that we broke getting into this new generation of companies being started that are not going to result in very successful companies being started. Um, I'm really not looking at it this way. I think overall, um, 
more companies are getting started and more companies are getting uh, are being successful because it's a domain that we've been learning about right uh it's it's a science right yeah. uh, there is certainly a part of art to it but it's definitely a science like we learn how to uh, do product exploration we learn how to be diligent about marketing dollar we learn how to do people management and 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 we have more and more examples of companies we can observe and and kind of like build and extract patterns out of so i think it's a science domain that we're learning more and more about and so we're getting better at it you know um as an industry uh and so it doesn't really matter to me um that everybody had to move out of san francisco and the valley to build companies yeah. i think to me it's an evolution that is part of the science like there were certainly things that we were finding in san francisco like availability of capital right that we identified as critical elements of successful startup ecosystem building right um but i don't see why we could not replicate this model in other places actually i think a lot of people were predicting for these things to evolve in, in this direction for a while so yep. uh, to me we're, we're we're on a continuum we're in 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 an evolution of what it is to build successful companies and and you know we're all students here right cool one question for you tracy as well um is how did you make the decision to be fully remote was it an obvious choice uh was it not obvious and what, what were the things you were looking to as you made that decision um i never ever want to sit through even an hour of traffic in the car ever again um so that was a very easy decision um, I think COVID just showed us that you can actually, with the right people, and I think like the right vision here and right leadership, you can actually run a company remotely. And so I, I had to have seen that before making that decision. Crystal, what, what about for you as, um, as you've had to make these updated decisions, what, what kind of data points were you looking at to decide whether we're remote, uh, how to run the company in this new, new manner? Yeah, I mean, what um, was really uh, advantageous when we started being, and we we call we call ourselves um, remote friendly, remote accessible, um, and uh, we're very flexible. Um, and from my perspective, you know, I I was able to build my entire leadership team like all across the country, which was um, incredible. I was really able to. Um, find great talent. Um, and that was really motivating and, and a big driver. Um, but, you know, for me, it's a, it's a balance. You know, we all get together one month out of one week out of the month, um, every month uh, to work together in person. I do think there's a lot of um, uh, that comes out of that, a lot of serendipity, a lot of these moments that, that, um, I wasn't able to like successfully recreate um, when it was uh, when we had to be remote. Um, so I think that there for us what works is 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 balance. And then you know there's a lot of cultural considerations. You know um, how do you make sure that it feels equitable when people are in person versus when people are on Zoom? And how do you balance like cultural perks? And um, yeah, it's it's been an interesting set of things to solve. Nice. Um, that's that's great to hear. Uh, around ten years ago, we are started to see this idea of uh, bundled value add services from VCs. Uh, 
and <laughs> it was like supposedly going to be the next big thing. Uh, now that now that we're ten years in, do you think uh, it has actually provided value for founders in a meaningful way? And has the expectation of what you would expect from VCs changed? Interesting. I think there. I mean, I think there was definitely a, a marketing component to that, right? Like VCs right. were trying to differentiate, right? If we all give money, yeah. how do we differentiate and provide some kind of value add, right? And I think to some extent, there are some. There is a category of VCs who definitely provide some value add. I don't know if it's super operationally, but at least from a networking perspective or connection perspective. And I think honestly. Uh, when it comes to your investors, at least that's how I'm looking at it. It's like, you, you need to like set your expectations, right? Right. It's not because you raise money from X or Y that all of a sudden, uh, you know, the odds of your company are, are improving because they're going to build it for you. Right. Like yeah. if you I always say, if you're in the room and your investors are telling you how to run or build the company, you get a big problem. Um, <laughs> like, yeah. uh, uh, just because I think, you know, you're the management, you're supposed to be sleeping, dreaming, nightmaring the company 24 seven, you know? And so if, if in the few hours they have, they come up with insight that are relevant to what you're thinking about, then there is a real competency issue, honestly. Um, not that obviously they cannot provide any input, but it's like, you should be on top of it, right? Um, and so at least that's where I set the bar for us. Uh, now, when it comes to, I think what, what VCs are really useful for is, um, for example, for me, it's like giving you a good landscape into what investors are thinking about and how they are thinking about your business, you know, because as an operator, as a founder, and even as an executive team, right, we think about executing, being successful in market. We think a lot about the customer, right? We think a lot about the KPIs that matter for us to be successful at delivering more value to these customers, right? But very often on, on my team and myself, I won't have like the institutional financial background to look at the company through the prism of what a public investor or late stage or even early stage investor would look at, you know, and be like, hey, here are the KPIs that make this business exceptional for my series B, C, D, etc. Right. So investors are amazing at this because that's their job. They're doing that 24 seven. They know the guys before them. They go the, the guys after them in terms of like the, the investment life cycle. Right. So you usually the person who leads your B and, and all the other funds who typically like lead B, they are able to tell you exactly what you need to achieve to be an extremely attractive investment when you go out for your C, right? And I think for that, they are just amazing. I think uh, sometimes they're also great at connecting you with very specific resources. Uh, and that's great because that's true for big funds, but that's also true for like, you know, uh, more ad hoc, smaller angel investors or small SPVs or things like that, that just have a lot of connections. Like, oh, I know a great PR guy, you know, uh, just finished that job there. Like you're looking for a consultant to help you on X or Y, just bring that person to the table. And the more investor you bring along the road with you, the, the, the more your network reach, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the further you can reach. And so that's great for that. Uh, I think operationally, again, I mean, I'm, I'm not expecting really investors to tell us X or Y on how to like run the business, like we should be on top of it. Um, but I think what they, uh, th what they bring is like pattern recognition from other companies. So like, you know, like uh, the market turn a few, a few months ago, all the companies switched to cost savings and start to look at profitability and things like that, right? They can give us the indicators of like, hey, here's where this company found some money, 
here's how this company did, you know, this project to actually uh, get profitable faster. Like, you know, like it's, it's always interesting to have like a connection neurons into all of these, you know, 50, 60 portfolio company per like in, by, by fund we invest in you to be able to get the best practice. And again, at the end, you make your own decisions and you can, um, you know, you can run the company the way you want, but like at least you have access to information, right? Which is not obvious uh, beside that. From my perspective, that was never the reason that I chose an investor. It was really the, the relationship with the person that was going to be literally sitting on my board. Um, and then it was the experience, um, what, whatever their background was, whether they were exclusively in B2B SaaS and that sort of experience and seeing those patterns would be useful to us. Or, you know, when we did around with Goldman Sachs, they just have so much visibility into so many like macro trends. And that was a really interesting value add, but it's not something that, that you know, was packaged. It was just, that's, that's what you get when you take money from this type of institution. Um, so um, yeah, it's not, it's not a hype that I would recommend optimizing for. Totally agree with Crystal. Um, although it was really helpful as a first time founder, I was 26 when I founded my own company, first company, and I was a construction engineer by trade. I didn't know anything about technical recruiting or management or branding. And I got a lot of help from our VC's operations team, and they were hired just to help out the portfolio companies. Totally agree. We wouldn't optimize a deal just to like use those value added services, but look, it was like super valuable for me for my first company. As a second time founder, I would say that that's less interesting because I now know how to hire a great marketer and, you know, a great technical recruiter. I don't need to use someone else's recruiters to hire engineers. Um, second time around, it's really finding the right board director because they're going to be on your board. They're going to make decisions with you. They even have the power to fire you if you don't have board control. Um, you want to make sure this person is someone you want to spend the next 10 years of your life with. It is a serious relationship. You're going to see them all the time. You're going to be talking about the hard things with them. And you just want to make sure they're like, at least for me, it's really important to me that this person is at minimum a good human being. And two, that they believe in me and my vision and will support me in every way possible. Yeah, makes sense. Um, one thing Jonathan mentioned was how there you can't necessarily rely on the data points you get from VCs. A VC may say you should, you know, be in person in naming a random city, Miami. And like, um, whereas you have to rely on some of your own first principles. I'm curious if there's any other data points aside from VCs that you're looking at for what to do, or is it all purely from your, your own reasoning here? Um, at Tiger Eye, we're building enterprise software, um, specifically in the sales category. And so when we when I do need advice, it's usually around product and market and the market landscape. And so it's very natural for me to go to operators in this space who have just been, you know, have seen the market change over the last 20, 30 years. Those are the people that have been most valuable to me, including founders that are in the enterprise B2B space. Yeah, I would agree. I probably wouldn't go to my VCs first uh, outside of it being like a connection to an operator or a founder. What I found be the most helpful um, outside of customers, I may just think that 
talking to customers and, and looking at the, you know, macro industry data for your customers. is just so that is just like, should be like, um, just like brushing your teeth every day. That's just what you should be doing. Um, I just found, um, I've gotten the most helpful and accurate, um, advice from, um, founders and operators that were at companies that were like, maybe like one round ahead of me or just one step ahead of where we were in during that same time period because they were running a company like 10 years ago it's kind of a different world so when it was people that that you know are around the same stage but a little bit ahead um it was really uh, fascinating to see how many times like when i get advice like that that i was actually like oh yeah that that did happen right when we hit this many people and yeah i should be looking out for that thing um, when I go to raise this round and, um, it always, it always was, um, yeah, worked out. Makes sense. Uh, and it's something we see on our product. We see the most useful pieces of that product are often the market benchmarks around what other companies are raising at and what the valuations are, uh, updated on a daily basis. And it gives you that gives founders that market visibility that's otherwise hard to get to. And then similarly in roll up vehicles, it allows companies to raise from a large set of angel investors uh, and expand that network of how their cap table can be helpful. We see some companies go to the extent of raising almost their entire round from customers and uh, having a couple of high dollar value investors to mm-hmm. solve the capital needs versus their helpfulness needs. Uh, and so it's interesting to see the unbundling play out. Uh, on, on the topic of equity, uh, the other players in the ecosystem that get equity are often employees. And we're seeing some interesting data about how new startups are forming and how companies are administering their equity plans. But I'm curious if you've seen any updates or changes in how you've approached equity compensation for team members in your new company versus your last. Um, hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I think I think there are some interesting trends Um emerging and that are like that I don't know if they are better or worse but that are easily identifiable I think the the gap between what you know larger paying companies and what startups can pay in best salary is getting uh, uh, wider and wider right and so I think it's probably a good thing to be honest I think on one side it can be interpreted oh my god it's going to be very hard for early stage startup to compete and get engineers or you know talented uh, product or, or business people out of these big names to actually come on board. But I think uh, at the core of it, it's like uh, you want to bring people early in your company who are not here for that early cash-based compensation, but who obviously make a bet on the long-term success on the, of the company, right? And equity is a tool to do that, right? And so if anything, it kind of exacerbates how different the offer like if you're like up against netflix to try to hire an engineer i'm telling you right away don't try to compete on cash right like you are gonna lose right there is absolutely no way you compete on these base base compensations right like and so the only way you can compete is by saying okay like i'll give you less base compensation right now but like here are the different scenarios that i'm seeing for the company and if you make a bet with me for the next like four or five years of your life, like if we exit and we do something right, I will make you like substantially more wealthy than if you were taking that base compensation, right? And honestly, 
especially in the early term, in the early stage of a startup, I don't think you want any employee who is not making that bet with you, right? Because it's uh, it's just uh, it's just how startup works, you know. Yeah. And and I I do think it's it also will tend to make startup more successful because a few years ago I remember seeing um, a lot of founders who were actually very skittish about equity. You know, they wouldn't give a lot of equity to their employees up front. Right. And they wouldn't promise big grants or things like that. And what was happening is that like, you know, employees were coming to work with like not really dedicated to like that extreme success of the company, you know. And so if you really want partners at the table, you know, and the same founders you would find later saying, hey, like this guy doesn't stay late at night to like finish the work that I really need for tomorrow. Like, yeah, guess what? Like he doesn't feel like economically buying into your project, you know. Um and so I think it's it's going in the right direction in that it lets people who need to optimize optimize for cash at certain you know period of their life to go work for bigger companies who can afford to pay them high base salary, and then it gives the opportunity for the people who actually want to make like a longer term bet on a higher outcome to come work for a startup and be really bought into the project, which is how it's successful. Second time around, I think the biggest difference is we've been given, and, and we're a small team right now in Stealth, we're 12 people. Um, we have given everyone, I think, two offers. One with a little more cash, a little less equity, and one with a little bit more equity, a little less cash, and then see what they come back to us with. Um, so far, everyone's made the right decision, which is take more equity. And I think, you know, if I ever have a concern that I'm being too generous with equity, the calculus I do in my head is, you know, if I'm, I'm like arguing over 0.5% in my head, it's, will this person make the company 0.5% more valuable over the next X years? And if the answer is like, hell yes, then it's an easy decision. Everyone on this panel so far has founded a startup in the last 10 years that went on to get acquired. And as you look on that experience, what were some of the trickiest inflection points to manage for you as a founder as you grew the company? The trickiest inflection point that comes to mind was when we grew from 50 people to 150 in one year. And I remember when that happened and everything was sort of in chaos. Uh, I looked at my founders like, we are not tripling ever again. That was way too much. Um, and it's something about hitting Dunbar's number at 150 where like things just break down. It's much harder to communicate. Um, we just slowed down as a team. Um, even though like there's now this new layer of management in the building. And I think hierarchy is a factor here, you know, instead of when you're 10 people, when you're 12 people, everyone sort of reports into a founder and then at 150, there's now three to four levels of hierarchy to the founders. And how does the communication architecture work? What is, what is the goal here as a team and what is being communicated to the frontline team? Um, I also think at 150, you really go from knowing everyone's names intimately and even knowing maybe, you know, people's dogs' names and their kids' names to maybe not even remembering. Um, you just can't remember 150 names. And there's this, there's just a siloing of departments that happen. And there's also natural tensions between those departments. Have you changed anything as how you approach your next company because of that learning? Is it simply the same thing of not tripling the company in a year or is it something else? I want else? to try to be less than 150 people for a long time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was, I was also going to call out the around 
40 to 50 people range um, felt like a inflection point where we really needed to formalize um, just things that felt like rituals into like actual like mission values um, and just be really deliberate about talking about that and, and communicating that and repeating it to the point where you think that you're talking about it too much in this like semi inauthentic way but um it, it and that was a kind of a hard transition for me but it was a very valuable transition um because it really got everyone just marching in the same direction and so as we started to continue to scale um to you know the 250 plus that we are today um we were able to just always you know these are the expectations of this is where we're going this is how you behave this is how we treat each other this is what matters um and so formalizing that became really important um and so i think doing that exercise you shouldn't do it too early you shouldn't like day one you know uh make your pitch deck and do your mission vision and values because i think you, i think it's um kind of a fluid thing that happens and it starts to emerge as the company grows um so that was one. Another one was when we had, like, I would say like revenue that felt like real. Um, I felt like was a, was an inflection point. And for us, like back then it was probably like a hundred K in MRR, you know? And, and at that point it, it was like, you had to start shifting from like vision and I mean, vision mattered, of course, but you had like data and you had trends and you had patterns and you had things that you were able to see like lagging indicators, leading indicators that, um, and you had to just start using that and like reflecting on it. And, and it just became a different way that you talked about your business, that you uh, thought about your business, that you planned. Um, and, um, and then, you know, I think when you hit different like people points and revenue points, all of that would just get more sophisticated and more sophisticated along the way. Um, I think it's not really like one. I, I don't think I can identify kind of like specific inflection points. I think it's just uh, you get to love the puzzle, man. You know what yeah. I mean? It's like it's just a gigantic puzzle. And if you don't enjoy solving puzzle, you shouldn't do this job, you know, yeah. <laughs> because that's what we do every day. Every day we just kind of like solve a few pieces and we see the next one that we need yeah. to solve and we just progress or it's like you gotta enjoy the you gotta enjoy the job like the yeah. process of solving these problems and identifying them um so yeah i don't have specific inflection points but i you know i can tell we're getting better at that puzzle and yeah. that's that's what i'm interested in you know it's just getting better and faster and 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 moving into uh building very exciting thing we just released a new product super exciting for us you know like We've been working on it for about like 18 months, two years, you know, R&D takes a lot of time. And it's like, uh, it's so exciting when it's out there and you're like, wow, like two years ago, when we talked the first time about this, I wasn't sure it was possible, you know? And so yeah. that's pretty sick when you see things like that uh, coming out and then the beginning of the process of iterating and learning more about them. Is there anything that you thought you did really well in your first company? It took me, it took me years to learn this and get here, but at some point in the company when it felt like everything was in complete shambles and i remember i remember not preparing for an all hands and you have to understand that for the five previous years like all hands was very well orchestrated i had a deck ready i had like rehearsed it several times and we were so busy and there were so many problems and i walked up to 
the mic cold. And I think by this point we were 300, 400 people. And I just talked, I just talked about what was bothering me, what I was losing sleep with. And it felt so good to be authentic and real with the team. And at the end of all hands, I told them, I don't have the answers here, but I know this team does and I need your help. And like the team totally responded to that. And that's like the one thing that I think was the most powerful thing I learned growing my first company that I've taken to my second one, which is like, all right, let's just talk about real shit. Let's talk about this because I ain't going to solve it alone. I actually need your help, which is why all of you guys are here. And it's just easier that way. It's simpler. Crystal, curious if you have anything that you thought was like uh, a learning that you would take on to, to future companies from, from growing Bentobox. I think for me, um, being a lot quicker to recognize and accept the things that I, can't, I may not be the best at or I can't solve, I need to um, you know, replace myself in or I need to actually like ask for help. Um, and I, I feel like I got really good at that towards the end. Um, but in the beginning, um, first several years, I, I think that I didn't feel the liberty to be, to not be able to do it all. Um, and I think that it probably, it, uh, it, that's something that I think that as I got better at it and I was like, okay, now I, I recognize that there's no ego. It doesn't, it doesn't say anything about me. This is about like what's actually going to move the business forward. I think that's something that I'll carry with me um, into whatever it, when and if I were starting at the company. Makes sense. Cool. Thanks. One point I was going to mention this data point of percent of capital that flows towards women only teams or women funded teams. And um, we, did some data research a couple of years ago and found that there was an increase, a, a pretty drastic increase in the number of solo GPs that are women. And I'm curious if that's something you've seen as well as you've been fundraising um, and raising capital for your companies. I think I think Silicon Valley and the investment world really got shooken by the Me Too movement. I mean, they were like the first ones that got called out. Um, and it looks really bad when it's like, of course, it's happening. Look at the partnership. Yeah. Here's all the women. Um, so yeah, I, I think it was in everyone's interest for them to start promoting their like really talented women team members to their partnership level and recruit really great people in. But you still look at the stats. I mean, you guys have the stats. It still ain't looking good, right? Yeah. It's yeah. it's helpful. Like it, it'll take time to improve, but you know, I, I am I am optimistic about the trends. Yeah. Um the data point was, um, I think it was around 17% of uh, deals on AngelList of the solo deals were from solo women GPs um, mm -hmm. in, in 2019, and that number has gone up. And so um, it's an interesting data point to see uh, from that side as well. Um, have you seen more women starting companies in your, in your network? Yeah, I think anecdotally, I've, um, and also I, I think um, there's probably a little bit of a bias. I, I see it more because I am um, a female founder, but I do, I do feel like um, there's been an increase. I do think I, there, to go back to what Tracy's saying, 
I do think that that improvement has been there and it's, you, you can see it. I think it's just the pace of it. It's just been a little like, ah, oh, this could go faster. You know, this could be happening at a higher level. Um, so I think that's the, that's the shocking, maybe the surprising part. It's an interesting job being a, being a founder. Um, looking forward to the future. What do you think has changed in 10 years about this job of being, being a founder? Uh, do you see anything substantively changing? Is it going to be the same? Like what, what do you think would be different? I don't know. Man. <laughs> I have no idea what it's going to look to be a founder in 10 years. Uh, I think it's about, I think in the end, it's really about getting people excited. You know, and, and I, because in the end, you're not doing the work like very fast. You, you fired yourself of everything that's deep execution related, right? So like success of the company is definitely a function of like vision, strategy, execution, and all the things that happen in the company, right? And yeah. so your, your overall success is a function of the quality and the caliber of the people that you can bring in and will stick with you for the long run, right? Yeah, and so um, I, I I don't know if it's a trend that's going to be created for more founders, but I think um, I'm just expecting us to continue learning more about what it feels like and what are the you know the great archetype of things to do and not to do when you are trying to build a big company. Yeah, and um, and yeah, I, I think you know we're, we're probably going to continue getting better at it, and I think it's a good thing. You know, it's creating value for the world out there. I'm I'm excited about it. So 10 years is both a long and short time, but I do know that 10 years from now, all the decision makers in businesses now are probably going to retire out of the workforce. And there's going to be this massive cultural shift from millennials and Gen Z replacing boomers and Gen X. Um, I have family members, I have friends, I have teammates that are in this TikTok Reddit generation, and I've spent a lot of time talking to them. And what I love the most is that this generation is so informed. They care about social justice. They care about equality. They care about emitting less carbon into our planet. And I am hopeful and optimistic that they're going to take everything they care about and put their money where their mouth is and actually look at these factors as they're running their business and starting their startups. I think that's a really great one. Um, mine's a little bit more obvious, but I think that um, the way that, I mean, it's really the thing that we've been hearing for the past, I would say like 12 months, it's the way that companies have just been valued and the way that, you know, um, we've been expected to grow businesses and, and um, what is like considered winning economics. I think has just, I, I don't think it's just a short-term kind of correction. This is, I think there's a fundamental chain, like the world has fundamentally shifted and I think it's good. And I think that businesses are just going to be um, really valued in, in, in the right way. And, and there's going to be a lot more expertise um, needed in like, what are the business practices? What, you know, what, what, how, how do you know if your business is working or not? And you know, more honestly looking at that. And uh, I think it's very healthy and I'm, I'm, I'm stoked about it. I'm curious if you have any other questions that you're thinking about, like um, that you would want to share with 
founders and investors who are in the audience. I have one to start off with, which is one trend we've seen in the last 10 years is that founders are making more angel investments themselves and founders are becoming GPs. Um, I'm curious to see if a, that matches your experience and uh, if it has, and it's something that you've been doing, how have you been thinking about those angel investments? It's really uh, challenging to be disciplined and it's uh, you want to be supportive. And I especially want to be supportive to those who are creating companies in the restaurant industry, which is uh, an industry that I believe could just dramatically benefit from technology built in the right way. And so when I see it done right, I get very, very excited. Um, but it's been, uh, you know, really you you've had I have had to develop a my own personal thesis very quickly so that I'm just like being like, this is where I add value. This is where I can spot something that can be successful. And um, that's when I should get involved. Otherwise, you know, you just kind of like, it becomes like an amusement park <laughs> in some way. So um, it's been, it's been a very uh, interesting experience. After my last company, um, after I retired from my last company, I was an investor for a little bit. I worked as a visiting partner for Y Combinator and invested and advised in about 160 companies over a year and also did a bunch of angel investing as part of that. Um, it was for me, it was very unrewarding um, and in like, you know, early stage is a different beast and it's very different than growth stage. Um, but this is why I founded a company again, because like building companies is what I like to do. It's definitely more meaningful at the end of the day for me versus just talking and listening to other people. Um, and like shooting at my hips every four months when they call me up and ask for advice, it's like, I have no context. All right, give it to me, give it to me for 20 minutes and let me just give you the best advice. Like, and don't listen to it. If it doesn't sound right, don't listen to it. I haven't been thinking about your company at all. Right. Um, so time will tell another 10 years will tell if I was a good investor or not, but right now I'm chalking it away as I am not a good investor and I'm a much better founder and operator. The other side of it is we see founders sometimes raising from other founders, not as a, um, way as their primary way of raising capital, but as a way to see other founders as helpful in their business. So I'm curious if on your own cap tables, have you found that to be true? Um, and Maybe, maybe this is one of those questions that's more sensitive where you don't want to call out your VCs, et cetera. But um, the, the general question here is like, you know, if you're starting another company and as you are now, Tracy, like is raising from in founders more compelling than raising from traditional VCs? No, it's nice to, you know, let your friends and family in on what you think it will be a big business. Yeah. <laughs> So if there are founders on my capital table, which there are, um, they're, they're my friends. And yes, I do think they will be helpful to me. Yes, I would uh, agree with Tracy. Um, and when I invest, I try to, just because of where I'm at in my life and how, how the amount of bandwidth that I have, um, I try to set expectations that I'm not going to be as helpful as they probably want me to be. Right now, that's not why they, that's not why they should let me invest. Um, I, I'll, I will, of course, try to, um, you know, be there and help out if, you know, I get an update and I can, you know, it's a real quick thing. 
Um, but it's really hard for me to get involved right now at like a very deep level. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Cool. I think that's it in terms of questions. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Thank you guys.